You may ask, how did this tradition get started? I'll tell you. I don't know. But it's a tradition. And because of our traditions, every one of us knows who he is and what God expects him to do. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Let's Talk Torah. I am Rabbi T. Jacobson with NM Streamcast, and we'll spend our time talking to our learning stuff and having fun while we learn. You can always send your questions and comments to our mailbag at letstalktorah at gmail.com, and, of course, I will answer as many as I can. So a boy in class asked me a fascinating question today, and I think I came up with an even better answer. So... In school, we are starting to prepare for Passover. The boys want to be prepared, what's going to happen, and what they have to sing, and maybe if they have things to say, and they have booklets. It's an it's a important, big production. One of the things we do is we teach them the four questions, not only in Hebrew, and not only in English, but also in Yiddish. Yiddish is really an old language. It's a European language. There are areas on the East Coast that still speak a lot of Yiddish. In Israel, Jerusalem speaks a lot of Yiddish, not towns like Bnei Brak. Most of the country does not. So the boy asked me, and I was in his house, not his parents, not his grandparents. Nobody understands a word of this old, archaic language called Yiddish. So he says to me, innocently, but a fair question, he says, why do we got to do all this in Yiddish? Like, why? Who cares? And I told him, I said, you know, it's a very, very good question. But I have a better answer. I said, if you look at the whole idea behind the night of Passover, where we're busy telling our children how we were slaves in Egypt and how God took us out of Egypt and the ten plagues, and the whole idea is father to son, father to son, grandfather to grandson. In Hebrew, the word is misora, which is like the the link, the chain that takes us back. In other words, as the Jewish people, we are always looking behind us. Yes, of course, everyone has to look forward. We always have to see what's coming ahead. But we're always going back. We want a chain we want, we want to know what our fathers did, what our grandfathers did. We've said this story multiple times. The great Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky was on a plane. And this is many years ago. He himself passed away, I think, in 86. So he was on a plane, and there's a grandchild that keeps coming back and forth to see if he has any needs. And there's an older gentleman sitting next to Rabbi Kamenetsky, and this older gentleman says, what is your secret? My grandchildren forget they wouldn't come and ask me how I'm doing. They're happy never to see me. They don't talk to me. They don't care about me. They're, I'm old. I'm over the hill. Why? Clearly your grandchild wants to help you. What did you do so special? So Rabbi Kamenetsky told him, he said, we the Jewish people, the seminal event in our history was the revelation at Mount Sinai when God came down and spoke to the Jewish people at Mount Sinai. We're far away from there. But my grandchild looks at me that I saw people 
who lived obviously 100, 150 years ago, and they saw earlier generations, and they saw earlier generations. And the further back you go, the closer you'll get to people that were at the Revelation of Sinai, saw people there, saw people whose grandparents were there, saw people whose great-great-great-grandparents were there. It's a link in the chain. I'm closer to the greatest point of our history. There's a connection. They want to be connected back to that great moment. Therefore, my grandchild honors me. You, on the other hand, tell your children you come from monkeys. So why does he care to be closer to a monkey? That was what he said. So I said, I think Yiddish is the same. I don't think it's so important for most of us to actually sing songs in Yiddish, even though I do teach them a separate song in Yiddish, and I barely know what all the words mean. But the point is, this is a language that was spoken by our great-grandparents, for some of them great-great-grandparents, back in Europe. So it's a connection to the past, and we want to protect that connection. We want them to realize there's something to be said to look back to where we came from. With that said, um, this week there was a very large funeral in Israel, actually in Bnei Brak, the city we brought up before. The leading Orthodox rabbi in the world passed away this week. Actually, last week, it was Friday, and they waited for the funeral till Sunday, Jerusalem, I mean, B'nai Brak, or Israel time, around 12 o'clock. This rabbi's name was Reb Chaim Kanievsky. The truth is, if you weren't looking at a Jewish or Israel-type uh, news feed, you didn't even know that this funeral had upwards of a million people there. I heard numbers 750,000. I've heard higher numbers, but it doesn't matter. Those are humongous numbers. I mean, the Israeli government understood um, to get to the city where the funeral took place, no cars. The highways were shut down, only buses. They themselves put out three 3,000 police officers just to keep the peace. And for the most part, from, again, from the reports I've read, there were upwards of 50 to 70 people that had to see um, emergency services, most of them for minor things. Again, when you're in a crowd that big, you know, people will bump, will trip, things will happen. But overall, it was, it was very calm and very orderly and, uh, and, and something to be seen. The, the different responses that I read of people that experienced it. Um, I had some, uh, some of my children, their parents or grandparents were there. I mean, the, my, my son-in-laws or daughter-in-laws. And I told my son, I said, for sure your in-laws will be there. How could you not be? This is an event that you can tell your grandchildren about, your great-grandchildren about. I was by this funeral. Not long. Um, there were prayers like Psalms beforehand. Um, there were three speakers. I was watching on uh, whatever the link was on Zoom or something, um, like 6 o'clock in the morning. Uh, by 7.15, maybe even earlier, the procession had already begun. And, okay, they had to have him in a van because you couldn't have people carry the, the, the coffin. That would be just too dangerous. So who was this great rabbi that a million people or three-quarters of a million people came to his funeral and that who knows how many people around the world um, looked inside, looked, you know, went to the computers to listen? Who was he? 
that so many people wanted this one last chance. So first of all, you should know, he was not the leader of a school. He was not the rabbi of a synagogue. Um, he didn't teach. He didn't lecture. He wasn't online um, where he had a million followers. Nothing like that. He lived quietly in his own small apartment in B'nai Brak. He had seven children. Um, I have no idea how many grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Um, the truth is my father-in-law actually used to pray with him um, when he lived in B'nai Brak back in the 50s. First things first, his father was, a, was also a previous um, leader. He's known as the Stipler. Also a person that didn't have a school. Very interesting. The last couple leaders, um, they, they didn't run a school. They just sat and studied Torah all day, all day, all night. And they became the, the accepted leader in Jewish law. How does that happen? Very simple. The first person comes and asks a question, gets a satisfactory answer, tells his friend, tells his friend. People start realizing they're going, and obviously as people grow up, it's, that's an oversimplification, of course. But what happens is great scholars communicate with great scholars, and you can tell when you are in front of greatness. So the greatest questions always made its way to his doorstep. As a, I told a friend last night, I said, it, the world came and knocked on his door. He didn't have time for the world because the world was knocking. So generally speaking, what would happen would be if you had a very important question or you felt it was an important question, you would write a letter or you would know somebody who could speak to one of his uh, gaboyim and they would take the question and they would look at it. If it was a question that anybody could answer, they answered a few. If it was a question that they recognized this was a special question, they would bring the question in for you and they'd bring you back the answer because Again, you may want to sit in his presence, but there's just it's just not possible. People needed blessings. There were times during the day people lined up and went through and got their blessings. If people needed more time or it was a more pressing issue, you would speak to some of the people who took care of him, and they would agree, yeah, this is something very important, and you would get the time of day to sit for a few minutes to ask the question, get the blessing, I actually read to my kids, um, my, grand, my wife's grandfather um, actually was the Torah reader in the synagogue that he, that the Chaim Kineski prayed in. So he, at the end of his life, he was very sick. So he wrote a letter, and, and, which was not common. He wasn't usually, usually it was very short. He actually wrote a very long letter, very clear handwriting. And the letter basically said, that we don't complain about all the suffering we've had because the suffering we've had just cleanses our spirit and just prepares us for the world to come. doesn't mean we don't pray for the future. Of course we pray for the future. But we never complain about the past. And then he had a very interesting line. He says in the letter, he says, I know you know this already, but I'm just trying to strengthen you. And then at the end there was a line, he says, if you remember any specific details of some special laws when you read the Torah, in front of the Chazanish, that was the great rabbi when Tzvachayim Kineski was a child, please send them to me because, you know, you were there. He doesn't even sign his name rabbi. 
the sign's name, Chaim Kenievsky. So there's all kinds of stories with him. That, again, for the most part, he did was study all day long. But his people that are so special, there was, there was what to be said about his blessings. He gave blessings and amazing things took place. Uh, there's stories with the Scud Missile Crisis back in the um, 90s. And he said, no Scud missiles are landing in B'nai Brak. It's not happening. Now, Iraq was just launching them. So it's not like they were able to aim them anywhere. It's just they launched. And he was right. For the most part, no Scud missiles hit B'nai Brak. They hit Tel Aviv. Didn't hit B'nai Brak except one. But that one happened to have landed on a house of somebody. Either no one was in the house or um, I think that was the story no one was in the house. He has a very famous story with... um, with a, a grasshopper. What's the story? So interesting enough, this Rabbi Kanievsky studied the whole Torah every year. As we all study, we take time, but even to do what's called the Talmud takes, for those that focus at a, you know a page, two sides of a page a day, takes seven and a half years. He did that in a year. Plus he did what's called the Jerusalem Talmud and all the Torah and all the basic law, and all the medrash. And the, the, the amount, the volume that he studied in a year is not to be believed. And he made a, um, every, um, the day before Passover, Arab Pesach, by the fast of the firstborn, he would make the siyum, and uh, that's what he did every year. So that's good in a month, like most years, there's 12 months in a year. We all know that. But in the Jewish calendar, in the lunar calendar, every couple of years, there's actually an additional month. It's the second Adar. This year, we happen to be in that additional month this year. So what did he do when there was an extra month? He wrote a book. He would take some, some subject that had not been delved into, and he would take the month, and he would write a book on it. One year, he was working on grasshoppers. The Torah talks about kosher grasshoppers and what makes grasshoppers kosher. For the most part, um, unless you are from um, African countries where you had what we call a misora, we talked about before a chain, you had uh, from your parents and grandparents which grasshoppers were eaten, those of us, which is most of the Jewish world, it comes from Europe, so we never saw grasshoppers, so we don't eat grasshoppers. But he wrote a book about grasshoppers. He was having a problem. There was, uh, there was uh, something he didn't understand. He needed to get his hands on a grasshopper, and uh, he didn't understand. He sent someone, someone to look, and the person uh, couldn't find. Anyways, he's sitting in his house with his stender, his lectern, and all of a sudden, through the window flies a grasshopper lands on top of his lectern and he looks at it and he checks and he sees all the things he wants to know and he's finished and flies away. Crazy story. Such a crazy story that there's different versions of what happened next. But uh, somebody told over the story and a boy laughed about the story or a teacher that was teaching his class said the story can't be true. And whether it was a teacher, that boy comes home and his house is infested all of a sudden with his grasshopper. It's, it's just flying all over the place, these grasshoppers. He realized he did something wrong. He goes to the rabbi, asks for forgiveness, gets home, and the grasshoppers are gone. 
Okay, they don't tell stories like that about me or you. Um, there's a, another interesting story that um, he was by one of his children's um, um, Shevarachis. In other words, the week of parties after a child gets married. So every night we make a party with a meal and people speak. So he told the Mechutin, he says, you know, I, uh, I can't really stay tomorrow night. I have chayvais. Chayvais means he has bills or debt. So the other side said, oh, I'm so sorry. If I would have known, I could help you out. He said, not that kind of debt. You know, I have a very rigid schedule of all the things I have to study. By coming to all these uh, wedding parties, I fell behind a little bit. I need an extra couple hours to catch up. That's all he meant. Um, there's a famous story with him. His mind was like a computer, but better than a computer. Um, I guess when they first came up with the idea of search engines, they said, how many times did it say Moses' name, Moshe in the Torah? Now, I'm probably off by the number. So I think he told them 264 on the spot. Now, that's an unusual brain. And the person said, no, my computer says 265. Sorry, Rabbi, my computer knows better than you. So Rabbi Kenievsky, without even blinking, says, no, no, your computer's wrong. You see, your computer cannot look at what we call nikudos, the dots that tell us the vowels of how to read a word. So there's a word in the Torah that has the same three letters, the mem, the shin, and the hey, but it's not pronounced Moshe. It's pronounced mise, which means from sheep. So your computer searched just those three letters, but you didn't realize in your search that you, you have to refine your search. Uh, my son told me another story. Um, fascinating. He, uh, I told you he never lectured. But, but when his father-in-law passed away, for a year he lectured on the Jerusalem Talmud. Very, very hard. Old Aramaic. Um, a lot of difficulty and back and forth, exactly the right way to read it and how to read it and missing words and extra words and, and kam is very, very complicated. Now most, even the people that are delving into the Talmud all day long are not busy learning that Talmud. It's, it's sort of a precursor. It was written about 200 years before the Talmud we have now. It was sort of like the first version. So it hadn't been worked through enough to make it easy for people, but people do study it. So he gave the lecture for a year. After the year, he says, you know, I did this for my father-in-law, but uh, I have to stop the lecture. Other people could give the lecture. So somebody asked him, how long does it take you to prepare for the hour and a half lecture that you gave? And he said, five minutes. So they said, you don't have five minutes? He says, I have five minutes. I need that five minutes for all the other things I study. Now, this is coming from a man who could have lines outside his door where people just came in for blessings. He didn't waste a second, but it doesn't mean he didn't care for people. He actually, it was very important to him when his wife was alive. He always ate with his wife. If his wife prepared, they didn't really have lunch. They sort of had like a, a later breakfast and an earlier supper. That's how they, they eat in Israel. So his wife would prepare the meal and he'd come to sit down. If his wife wasn't ready, he would not start eating. He would go to the side, open his whatever book he was studying at the time, and wait and study till his wife sat down. When his wife sat down, close the book, 
and they had lunch together. He understood the value of time, and he understood giving of himself. And uh, but at the same time, right? Nobody studied like he did. So I had some interesting thoughts. Okay, so okay, I tried to give you a picture of this great rabbi. Uh, the world knocked at his door. Um, he cared about the world. He cared about people. He he everything to him was Torah study. Um, but my question is like this. And I, I this question has been asked multiple times, not by me, but uh, by many great rabbis. He was ninety four years old. There's a million people that went to his funeral, and they were crying. What are you crying for? The man had a good run, ninety four years. Children, grandchildren, great grandchildren, learn the Torah. Who knows how many times? You know he's going straight to the world to come, right? He's going to heaven. So what are we so upset about? Like, why do we make a big deal? So the answer is something that I think is very important to think about. We're not crying for him. Rabbi Kanievsky, he is in a good place. He has nothing to worry about. We're the ones that are suffering because we have now lost that special leader. Who's the next leader? I can't tell you. Time will tell who the next leader is. But every time a leader is gone, so all of that Torah study that he did, the, the person who he was, that, he, that his prayers, his blessings protected the Jewish people, he's gone. Who will be the next person who may or may not be able to protect the Jewish people? I don't know. I'm sure there's a few different people. Nobody, it's not a vote. We don't vote the person in. It just happens. Who all the rabbis will go to, to with their questions? Who will make decisions that will affect the Jewish people? We find the person who we like his answers and we like his decisions, and he becomes that person. But we lost that great person. That's what we're, we're troubled with. That's why we pay our last respects. That's why we're so sad. That's why millions would either at the funeral, involved in the funeral, talking about the funeral. That's something that, for the most part, you look online, look for large funerals. There's two funerals they talk about with some type of dictator that died and probably forced everybody to show up at the funeral. But you look online to find out uh, how many people go to the president's funeral. You know, it's in the thousands. You know what I mean? No, No one tells you there's a million people there. right? It's not a rock concert. Right? In other words, by by the rest of the world, when will you have a million people? Yeah, in a, in a, in Central Park, and there'll be a there'll be a concert, so they're getting entertained. There'll be a, a football game. That's not where the Jewish people are running to show something of major importance. It's not for entertainment purposes. It's we recognize what we're missing, and because we recognize what we're missing we ourselves hopefully will increase what we're able to do because it's something that's necessary. You know, it's interesting. Uh, we talk about leaders. So we say in our prayers in the Shona Esrei, we say every day, we say the Allah Tzadikim. It's a prayer that God should take care of the righteous and the, 
and the pious and the remaining scholars and the righteous converts and everybody else. So it's interesting that when it, we say, in that prayer, we say the elders, um, the elders of your nation. We don't say the righteous of your nation. We don't say the pious of your nation, the elders of your nation. Why? Because a righteous person could lead a very insular life. He could be a hermit. He doesn't have to talk to anybody. He could sit in a locked room and have his books. And he could be very, very righteous. But he's not a leader. A leader is public property. A leader has to live. A leader has to live, in our case, for the Jewish nation. You know, it's interesting. Um, Rav Yezundel Salan said, we've talked about it in the past, uh, when the brothers sold Joseph, right? So the ten brothers, um, they decide that Joseph is uh, trying to get them out of the Jewish nation, and they're, they're jealous of him, so they sell him down the river, down to Egypt. So the underlining sin was that they didn't ask Jacob. There's a leader right here. There's the leader of the Jewish people. Yeah, it's true, it's your father. And if you ask him, he's not going to like the question very much. And you might not get the answer you want. But the whole idea is, when I ask a question, when I go to a great rabbi and I ask a question, so I know I might not get the answer I want. That's too bad. If you don't like the answer, then then don't ask the question. Now, that's not the way we should be living our lives. right? The idea is, the idea is what does God want from me? If I want to know what God wants from me, then I got to ask the question in the right way. Uh, Same thing with a golden calf. They didn't ask Aaron what to do. They told him what to do. You know, I have one, uh, it says over here, the great Rabbi Akiva. He says, the Jewish people are like a bird and the leaders are like our wings. Chickens, you know, they can live on the ground. A lot of birds could live on the ground. But when you want to soar, when you want to fly, when you want to become something great, something special, then you need to follow your leaders. Your leaders help you soar. Oh, and here comes the music. So hopefully we enjoyed it short and sweet. I gave you a drop of an insight of a picture of who and what happened this week. Of course, thank you to our wonderful sponsor listeners. You know, I can't do it without you. Thank you to the production team. We have David. I think we have David, but sure we have Cisco and Andy in the back. And I hope I've listened Food for Thought. Until next time, I am Rabbi Sweet Jacobson. You've been listening to Let's Talk Torah on NM Streamcast. And until next time, don't forget to think about it.